Okay, um, so we're in the summer psalms. This is a series we're just doing for the summer, uh, kind of picking out about 12 or 13 uh, psalms that will carry us each week through the summer. Um, and, and there's not any real particular reason to pull these out aside from just that we like them or we think they're, they're interesting. Um, and last week we looked at Psalm 16. So just as a recap to that, it doesn't really you know, lead into this, but just to, if you missed it, um, that's a psalm that very clearly uh, is used by the apostles in the New Testament to defend and, and uh, strengthen the argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection is the central doctrine of the Christian life. So Psalm 16, we started with that just to give you a really clear picture of Jesus in the Psalms. Jesus is all over the Psalms. Um, he's not mentioned by name, but he is all over. And we're going to see him again today. So, and we'll see him every week, but we're going to see him uh, again here in a really profound way. Um, so as we get into Psalm 19, uh, just, just kind of as the way that this psalm breaks down, there are really, it's really addressing one primary question. Uh, the, the primary thing that it seeks to answer is this. How is it that we have a relationship with God? How, how does God come into relationship with us? How, how does he speak to us in, in a relational way? That's what Psalm 19 really addresses. It's answering that question, and it's going to answer that question in a couple of ways. Um, it's going to first talk about the bulk of Psalm 19 addresses how God approaches us. How does God approach us? Now, this is important uh, because our relationship with God is not primarily about us trying to reach him. That's not the Christian faith. That That's actually the antithesis of the Christian faith. It's uh, the, the Christian faith is God comes to us, reaches us, approaches us. And, and that, that's what the Bible says over and over and over again. I mean, there is just nowhere in the Bible where, where you see that un, uh, not taught. From the very beginning to the very end, it is all God coming to us. And so that's affirmed really clearly in Psalm 19. But, that's, but, but David here is going to answer that question. Well, how does God approach us? How does God speak to us? That's the first part of the psalm. And then the second question that's going to be answered is how do we then approach God? How do we respond to the initiating love that he has for us? And so those are kind of the, the overview of how we're going to uh, tackle this. Um, and, and so we're going to just start here in verse uh, 1 through 6. Um, this is, again, talking about how God speaks to us. And he's going to really speak to us predominantly through two ways. The first way is Psalm uh, verses 1 through 6, and then the second way will be laid out in uh, 7 through uh, 11. So let's look at verse 1 through 6 to begin with here. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he, God, has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising, the sun's rising, is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. All right, so these first six verses lay out the first way that the psalmist wants us to understand, that David wants us to understand how God speaks to us. And it's pretty clear. It's, it's really summarized perfectly in the first verse. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, God speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through the created world. And we all know this. We all get this intuitively because we've all experienced it. On, on one level or another, some of us much more than others, but we've all experienced the, the declaring of God's glory through the created things. And the example here that, that uh, David uses is that the heavens, that, that idea there is talking about the, the night sky, the, the beauty of the stars, right? The sky above, it proclaims, it declares. In other, this is all speaking language, right? The heavens declare. That's a word that means says something, right? Um, proclaims is a word that implies speaking. The created world speaks and proclaims and preaches about the glory of God. And I think we all understand this intuitively because if you've ever been outside uh, on a clear night outside the city um, where you just can see the stars blanketed, uh, blanketing the sky... And, and I would grew up, so I grew up as a city kid. I was, grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, really, you could see like five stars. You could actually count the stars in Chicago. It's pathetic. Um, so when people would say, could you count the stars? I'd be like, yeah, one, two, three, four, five. That's, that's all you can see because there's so many lights and it's never dark. Um, but I would come up here as a kid. I would camp up at Silver Birch Ranch or I would come up here on uh, camping trips elsewhere around and, and I was just, my mind was just blown because you just don't see the stars when you're a kid in the city. And so, see, and, and here's the thing. We all have experienced that on one level or another, but, but no one, no matter where you are on the spectrum of belief, whether you're an atheist or a, a believer in Jesus, Nobody has ever had the response of seeing the night sky completely clear, seeing the Milky Way, you know, with the naked eye and all these amazing things. No one has ever said to themselves, wow, I'm awesome. You've never said that when you see the sky at night. If anything, you're saying, wow, I'm really small. I'm really small. I I don't have much greatness in me here. Uh, If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, and I was there maybe uh, in my teen years, my early teens. Um, and I remember just being blown away by the enormity of it. Just huge. You just stand on the edge of this uh, incredible thing and you're looking out and all you can see is this canyon. And, and again, no one goes and says, wow, I am so great. I did this, right? Because you'd be an idiot to say that. <laughs> you, you didn't do it. What, what that does now... What that reaction, that natural gut reaction of seeing the stars or seeing something beautiful like the Grand Canyon or the, or the Rocky Mountains or anything else that just blows you away, um, that response that says, I am small, I am not great, I am just this speck, that's the human heart intuitively understanding the glory of God. 
Now, that's, what's going to be clear here is that that's not enough to get us to Jesus. We need something more. But that's the starting point. That's the point in which God is saying to every human heart who's, who is humble enough to listen that you did not make this, and we can come up with all kinds of theories for how it came to be, but really the, most, the, the one that makes the most sense when you actually look at the evidence of, the, of the science, the, the complexity of the things that we are experiencing are so huge that coming by chance is just, it's like, almost, it's impossible, right? The thing is that the, the, the evolutionary theory, I think, falls flat because it doesn't take into account the complexity of life. Uh, Darwin, for example, I think he was doing the best with what he had, right? And he didn't believe in, in God. And so, you know, he was trying to understand the world around him. But he didn't understand, like we do today, how complex things were. He didn't understand it. He, just, he was in the 1800s, right? This didn't get what we get now. The longer you, you learn about the world around us, whether it's the macro world or the micro world, the complexity of the world screams a creator. It just does. Because it's, so, it's just so complex that, that coming by, about by chance is just impossible. And, and it's just, it just is. It's just not compelling, to say that all of this just showed up sometime because of an explosion. So we, what we're seeing here is that the scriptures are affirming the reality that God created all this and our response to creation, if we're quiet and humble before it, will, will not lead us into a greater view of ourselves, but in a greater view of God. The glory of God is proclaimed and declared in the created things. But like I said, it's, it's not enough to just have the created world. The creation can be a, a starting point to get us to Jesus, but it's not enough. We need something else. We need, a, we, we need not just a general revelation of who God is, which is the created world. We need a specific, special revelation of who God is. And that actually comes to us in the next section. So look at what verse 7 through 11 have to say. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So David, what he's talking about here in its original context, is he's talking about God speaking not only through creation, but also through his word. Speaking through his word. And, and in, see, now David's understanding, David's knowledge of the law uh, was just that. It was the law. It was David had at his disposal uh, or at his access, he had the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and he probably had access to Joshua and Judges and most likely Ruth. So those are the first, you know, eight books of the Bible. You got the first five of Moses, you got the three uh, leading up to 
the, the Samuel, the books of Samuel and Chronicles and all those. So David's access to the Bible was maybe perhaps eight books at most. Um, he probably had Ruth because Ruth was really the story of his great-grandmother. Um, that's who Ruth was, David's great-grandmother. He probably had access, of course, then before that to the Judges and Joshua, those historical books. But beyond that, David didn't have the other books of the Bible because he was living the books of the Bible at that point in time, right? 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel are about David and, and Saul and the conflicts that, that arose there. So uh, once you get past Ruth, David has no more books. He's living it out. So, so his understanding of God's word was significantly less than ours living on this side of history because now we have all 66 books of the Bible that we can then uh, have uh, you know, access to and, and understand through the lens of Jesus. Um, but David didn't have that. So what he's talking about here is that the, the Bible he knew, the law, was, was something that he cherished because it revealed to him who God is. And, and so he has all these great attributes of, about the law. And he uses the law uh, in the first verse here in verse 7. Then he uses a whole bunch of synonyms, right? So the, pre, the testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules. Uh, these are all synonyms for the same thing. He's talking about the word of God, the law, as it was revealed to him. And he, he says all kinds of wonderful things about it. He says the law is perfect. It's, it's sure, it's right, it's, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. All right? So, so he's just expounding on this, this wonder that, that is God speaking to us through his word. Now, he, here's what we got to do, though. Um, because if, if last week I, I mentioned how um, we tend to read the Psalms, and what do we do? We, we read what David has to say, and then we draw this straight line to ourselves. And, and we just draw the straight line, right? Like, David, to me, there's nothing in between. We're just going to go straight there. Here's, here is a great example of how that's problematic. Because if we read these words, and we just say, all right, David to us, we'll go, David says the law is perfect, so now we've got to live under the law disregarding the entire fact that the New Testament tells us we don't have to live under the law. <laughs> so how do we deal with this? Is, is the law perfect? Yes. Yes, it is. The Bible says it is. However, we have to do some, some work here interpreting this so that we don't come across as um, you know, people that feel like we have to live under the law. Because then, then you know, we got to read the book of Galatians uh, again and go, wait, oh, wait a minute, Paul's yelling at this church in Galatia about this very thing. So, so what do we do? Well, we, date, we make this triangular thing, like I said last week. We draw a line from David to Jesus, and then from Jesus we can draw a line to us. That's how we have to approach this. This is really how you have to approach everything in the, New, in the Old Testament. Um, just as you read the Old Testament, you have to think through it in that way, uh, to get to the true meaning of what, what it's being, what's being said for us. Because we live in light of Christ. And, and so we have to draw these lines to Jesus and then make those connections. So let's look at what the New Testament has to say about this. And I think 
when we do, we're going to get a whole lot more out of this than just being able to sit here and go, see, the, the Bible, particularly if we're drawing a straight line, we should just say, well, the law is what we should follow. It's what we should love. That's, that contradic- contradicts what the scriptures say. So we need to do some interpretive triangular work here. Um, flip over to Romans chapter f- uh, 10, verse 4. And I could take you to a few, few places, but Romans 10, 4, I think really just simply summarizes this for us. We'll really read 1 through 4 um, and, and get the context here. Because um, there is a danger in drawing just straight lines to ourselves without looking at who, who Jesus is and how he's fulfilled this. Um, and the danger is that it will lead us ultimately to try to live under the law. And, and the Bible is very clear that that's not how we ought to live. So look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 10 in Romans. Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, now them refers to the Israelites, the people that Paul came from, his, his nationality, his people. He's praying for them, and here's what he's praying for them, that they may be saved. So that's, that's important because the, the Jewish people, according to the scriptures, um, do not have the full picture of salvation because they only have a portion of it. And Paul's saying, my desire for them is that they would be saved, that they would actually know the saving work that's for them and that's, that's available to them. Look at what he says, verse 2, for I bear them witness, I acknowledge this, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God. Paul can attest to that because he had this incredible zeal for God, this zealous love for God. It wasn't genuine love as revealed in Jesus, but it was what he believed was zealous love that actually led Paul prior to knowing Jesus to murder Christians and to arrest them and to, and to, uh, to, to like applaud that they were doing this persecution. Paul understands the zeal, but he says that that zeal comes out of ignorance, not out of knowledge. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God, to God's righteousness. So what he's saying is, is this, that this zeal that, the, that, the, that he understood because he lived in it, he understood it, he lived it, he experienced it, um, that zeal was not from knowledge, it was from ignorance of the righteousness of God. And, and that because they were ignorant of what God's righteousness entails, they tried to establish their own righteousness. They tried to establish their own righteousness through, their, through the law, through living out good works, through doing all these things. And so they, don't, they didn't submit to God's true righteousness. Now look at what verse 4 says, because I think this is the key in all of this. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did you catch that? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here's, here's what this is saying. Um, we, that word end, and this is just from, my translation uses the word end, others use other words, but the, the word end there is the Greek word telos. 
which is, um, it can be translated end, but really what it's, imp- what it's really getting at is the goal of something, the purpose of something, right? So when you say like the end goal, you're talking about the purpose of doing something, right? The end goal is to get to, to this much money if we're saving money, right? Whatever, you use any example you want. But we use that term end goal to refer to this purpose, the, the, the reason we're pursuing something. And so what Paul is saying here is that Christ is the culmination, the end goal, the fulfillment of the law. He fin- he's the fulfillment of it. He's the, the one who can truly accomplish it and did accomplish it, which then leads to righteousness for everyone who believes in him. This, this righteousness that Christ lived was a once-for-all righteousness that he was the, because he was God, who, and is God, who became man and lived as a human being under the law, he, he had the, the perfect ability to obey everything in God's word that, which we could never do, no matter how hard we tried, we could never do it. And, and for centuries, the Israelites tried and failed to keep the law. They continually failed. And they were told that they would. They were told that they would. And, and so there had to be one who came who could keep the law. And the only true lawgiver, uh, law keeper rather, is the lawgiver. So the lawgiver becomes man and then lives under his own law. That's the gospel. How amazing is it that, that the, the very God who created this law would actually come into the world and keep it for us. And he's going, I don't, I know you guys, you're a bunch of fools, you can't do this. So I'll do it for you. He came and Jesus Christ is the end, the goal, the purpose of the law. He's the finish line for the law that leads to righteousness for all who believe. And so here's, here's how this all plays out, right? It's we, we can then, and we, we have to, I think, to rightly understand Psalm 19, we have to read Psalm 19 and really all of the Old Testament through this lens, through the lens of Jesus being the, the finish line, the goal, purpose of the law. And, and whether or not David understood to, to what degree he was referring to Christ is, is unknown. I don't, I don't know. Uh, what may have been what in David's mind as he wrote these words. He may have been told by the Spirit that this was about Jesus, as he apparently was uh, in Psalm 16. Uh, Peter says in his sermon in, at Pentecost that, um, that David was a prophet and, and was told that these things would be about Jesus. Um, we don't know about, we don't have like direct biblical evidence about Psalm 19. It could be though. But here's what this tells us. Here's what Romans 10.4 does for our understanding of Psalm 19, 7 through 11. It means that Jesus is ultimately the, the end goal of what David's expressing here. And these words apply to Jesus. They, they don't apply. A wrong interpretation of this would be us saying, okay, David says the law of the Lord is perfect, so now I should live under the law. No, that's a wrong interpretation. What David is getting at and what we can see through Jesus is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so because of him, we can then live and worship him in in righteousness. 
So let's do a little experiment to show you how this works. Um, we're going to just replace, as we read Psalm 11, uh, 19, 7 through 11, we're just going to replace all of those phrases that refer to the law, and we're going to put Jesus' name in its place. We'll see how this stacks up, and I think it's actually pretty awesome. So verse 7. Instead of saying the law of the Lord, we're going to say Jesus, okay? Jesus is perfect. Does that work? Uh, yeah. Does it work if you put your name in there? No, right? It doesn't. But it does work. Jesus is perfect, reviving the soul. That's what he does. Jesus is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus makes the simple wise. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jesus is right, rejoicing the heart. What rejoices the heart like Jesus? Jesus is pure, enlightening the eyes. Paul says in Ephesians that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to the gospel. The, Jesus is clean, enduring forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is true and righteous altogether. So we see him in this, right? We can see that all these things are true of Jesus. And, and they're, they're true of the law in its, like, in its like, purpose. But the purpose of the law, there's really a few purposes for the law. The primary purpose for the law is to show us that we can't keep the law and to point us to one who can. That's why God gave the law. He didn't give the law to, to us to say, we have to just obey it all the time because we can't do that. He gave us the law to show us that we can't obey it almost ever and we need someone who can, which ultimately shows us Jesus. And so that, that's the predominant purpose for, for the law as we look at it and understand it through the lens of Christ. And I think that that's affirmed throughout the New Testament. And then it says this, that more to be desired are they than gold. Now, they, of course, in the context refers to the law, but in the context of Jesus, we can say this to be true too. More to be desired is Jesus than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also is Jesus than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. See, see, when we understand the gospel and the fulfillment that Jesus is for us through the law, in the law, then, then we can apply these words to him and find a much sweeter meaning. Otherwise, reading this without the context of Christ's fulfillment of the law, this becomes extremely burdensome. Because I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to live perfectly under the law, it doesn't feel like it revives the soul, does it? Because it, it kind of crushes the soul. And that's sort of the purpose of it. And so what, what David is getting at here is that in its, in its uh, perfection, in the perfection of the law being perfectly lived out, these things are true. But, but none of us can perfectly live them out, so we need Jesus to do that for us. And as we approach Jesus in his perfection, in his purity, in his righteousness, then we are given righteousness that comes from him.
we actually know that the, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus fulfills the law, that he's the end of the law. Um, we also are told that Jesus is himself the word of God. I think a lot of times we think about the word of God and what we think about, what comes to our mind is the book, right? The, the Bible, which is true. Um, we can say that this is the word of God, but only so far as it points us to the true word of God, which is Jesus. If you look at John chapter 1, it, it shows us this. John 1 uh, says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And, and then it says this in verse 14, The word became flesh, took on a body, and dwelt among us. That literally means that word dwelt among us means he set up a tabernacle among us. The tabernacle imagery from the Old Testament was that the, as the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness waiting for the promised land, um, they had a kind of a, a church, so to speak, a tabernacle that they would set up and take down as they moved around. And they would set up that tabernacle in the middle of the, t- in the, of the, middle of the camp and, and that was where the presence of God was for them. And so what, what John is telling us here is that this tabernacle is actually Jesus, who is God, become flesh, become a man. He's dwelt among us, and he, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the final and finished Word of God. It's even more clearly expressed in Hebrews chapter 1. Let me read that for you very quickly. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 1, if I can get there here, um, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's a long time ago. God's speaking. He's always been speaking. And he primarily used the prophets to do that. Verse 2, But... In these last days, now what's, what is he referring to as the last days? Really any day from Jesus' incarnation to his return, the Bible understands as the last days. So we're in the last days. Uh, doesn't mean that like, we're necessarily all going to be you know, doomed here, but every generation from Jesus on has understood that these are the last days. We're in that period of time. That's how the Bible understands it. So in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son. How has God spoken to us today? How does he speak? He speaks through creation, but he also speaks through his word, right? But the word is Christ himself. So in the last days, Jesus has spoken to us. And it says that whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
All right, so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us grasp is that Jesus is the full and finished uh, explanation of God for us. We don't need any additional revelation. We have all that we need in Jesus. He is the one that has spoken fully and finally because he is the one who became man from deity to humanity. He became man. He didn't lose any of his deity, but he gained his humanity. And in that way, he lived under the law. He obeyed it perfectly. He died as a sacrificial lamb as the law requires sacrifice for sin. Jesus was that sacrifice for sin as he died on the cross and he rose to life to to give us all, all of our hope. So here we see the words of Psalm 19 applied to Jesus because he's the perfect lawgiver and so he really is the replacement, the finish line for the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And so that's where we see Jesus applied here. We have a little bit more to unpack here, just a few more verses. And this is really, like I said at the beginning of this, most of the psalm just talks about the the revelation that God gives us of him, right? Most of this psalm rightly speaks about God speaking to us, speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through his word, which now we, of course, understand as Jesus in in the New Testament uh, context. But there's also something that we need to wrestle with, and that is, how do we approach him? In light of him loving us, coming for us, uh, doing everything for us, how is it that we should approach him? And what I'm just amazed at is how clearly the gospel comes through in these verses. Here's what he says. Here's how David begins, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? He just starts with that question. Who can possibly wrap his head around how bad we are? And then he says this. He, he, this is a prayer that he's asking God to do. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. The first thing that David is expressing here is what we would call from this side of biblical understanding is, uh, is justification by faith alone. That's what he's saying. Declare me innocent. Or we could say righteous. Righteous is is an appropriate way to to translate that. Declare me righteous from hidden faults. And that's exactly what Jesus does in the gospel, right? It's we believe in in a justification by faith alone. What that means is that God declares us righteous because we believe and trust in him. And that's it. Not because of our works, not because of the good things we do, but because Jesus loves us and faithfully died for us. He can declare us innocent, righteous, perfect from all of our, even from our hidden faults. Think about that. Think about that. Like, you don't even know, and I don't even know how deep our sin runs. And yet every sin that's in my heart that I don't even know about has been paid for by Jesus. Amazing. Then he says this. Here's the next request he has for God. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
This is amazing because what David's talking about here, whether he even realizes or not, is he's just expressed perfectly justification and sanctification in that order, right? He's first asked that God would declare him righteous, and then he, then he prays, in light of that, keep me from sinning. That's what sanctification is. It's the growth of the Christian life to keep us from sinning. Like, we are going to sin because we're imperfect, flawed, sinful people. But as we grow in Christ, that sinfulness in us begins to diminish a little by little uh, as time goes on. That's progressive sanctification. It's a gradual sanctification that happens in our lives. And so what David is asking God to do is first justify me and then sanctify me. These are the things that we ought to be praying as well. Right now, the, sancti- the, great, excuse me, the justifying work of God is a one-time act. It doesn't have to continually be asked for. It doesn't have to continually be pursued because once he declares you righteous, you're declared righteous. But the ongoing sanctification is something that we can pray for and ask him for continually. And so verse 13 become something that we can rightfully pray in light of Christ's sanctif- or justifying work, we can pray this prayer, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I bet, if you're like me, that there are sins that you would say have some dominion over you. We all do. Whether it's anger or pride or, or sexual sin, lust, brokenness in those areas. We, we can have sin in our hearts that, that we could say, this has dominion over me, but it doesn't have to because Christ finished the work. He died for your sins. He died for the punishment of your sins and he died for the power of those sins. And so we can pray to him for, for freedom from those, those sins. Then he, then he concludes this with verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What he's praying for here is that the, that the work of Christ justifying us from our sin, sanctifying us would lead us into a, uh, the words of our mouth because the words of our mouth reflect what's in our hearts, right? We speak out of what's in the heart. That's what James says. The words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, may those be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And the, again, this is a sanctification prayer. It's a prayer that we are asking God to transform our hearts into the likeness of Jesus more and more so that our hearts would meditate on him and our words would reflect those things. It's a process. It's, it's progress. It's, it's not going to happen necessarily overnight, but it's something that we ought to be asking him for and pursuing, but understanding that it's not because of our sanctification. It's not because of the good things that we can somehow pull off that God accepts us and declares us innocent. No, he's declared us righteous. He's declared us innocent of hidden faults. He's done that because Jesus died on the cross and paid for every sin that we've ever committed, past, present, future, all are done away with. And then because of that, in light of that, we can then pray for transformed hearts. If we think that it's our transformed hearts through our own efforts and activities that's going to get us right with God, we've got it backwards. It is God getting us right with him 
that then leads us to transformation. And twisting that around becomes legalism. It becomes just absolute uh, law-keeping that we're told that we aren't called to do. But, but if we see Jesus' work and then our lives as an outflow of that, then, then we can rightly understand these things through the lens of Christ. So what, what we're asking for here is approaching Jesus in light of who he is means we approach him in humility, knowing that we can't save ourselves and we need him. We come to him in confession, acknowledging our faults and failures and owning those and bringing them before the cross. And we pray for transformation of our hearts, which ultimately will lead to transformation of our actions. But it all starts with the heart. We come to Jesus in light of who he is and what he's done. We come to him in humility, confession, and, and request for transformation. And so that's what we get to do. And we're, we're going to encourage you to do that um, as, as we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare our hearts to worship him. Uh, let's let's um, pray these words um, to uh, our hearts today. So let me, let me pray for us, and you can pray as you feel led in your own heart as well. Father, we do want to pray that you would help us to know that you have declared us innocent. You have declared us innocent from all of our faults, our known faults and our hidden faults, that Jesus Christ took upon himself all of our faults, all of our sins, all of our brokenness. He took it on himself on the cross. Lord, would you help us to rest in that, to be secured in that, to know that that's true and to live as if it is. And Lord, then would you lead us and hold us back and protect us from any of the sins that may plague our hearts this morning. Lord, we are presumptuous in our sins. We are at times feeling the weight of their dominion. May we, may we be freed from it, Lord. Would you free us this morning from these sins? Would you give us a new life and a new outlook and a new hope in Jesus? And we pray that all in his name. Amen.